Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, bosses. This is Johnny FD, and welcome to Invest Like a Boss, episode 172. I'm out here in Sri Lanka, and Derek, back in Venice. I am back in Venice. Uh, not much new here. We can still eat outside. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I just got back from a surf this morning. Uh, so, Derek, thank you for pushing back this episode for an hour so I can make it back. Anything to help you catch a wave, Johnny? <laughs> yeah, and just one wave, actually, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I heard, I heard you had a little adventure afterwards, though. Do you want to fill everybody in on that? Yeah, so I, I rode my motorbike out there. It's a, like a little 125 Honda Grom. Um, here they're called the, the Navi, bright orange, super fun. And I didn't, I, I, ne- I never bring my phone with me. I never bring any cash with me, you know, just because, you know, it's, it's not that far of a drive. And on the way back, I hear my engine explode. Luckily, I, it's right in front of my favorite fruit seller. So I pull over and I, you know, <laughs> get a fresh coconut. Uh, a bunch of other random uh, Sri Lankan guys who, you know, either surf with me or recognize me from my YouTube channel. They pull over and they're like, hey, what's wrong with the bike? And all of us just kind of there hanging out, you know, and I'm just thinking this was the best place, you know, for my bike to break down. I mean, it was it was awesome. That sounds awesome and terrible at the same time. <laughs> I recently sold my motorcycle because it's so dangerous here in LA. I don't want to be that guy that's scared of everything, but it's crazy dangerous to ride a motorcycle in LA. So I just decided it was best to get rid of it, but I do kind of miss it at the same time. Yeah. Riding a motorcycle in the U S in general, but especially Los Angeles or, you know, most of California is dangerous because everybody's an SUV. Everyone's texting while driving and nobody cares or is paying attention to anyone else. Everybody's on their phone. Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. And here in Sri Lanka, drivers are crazy. You know, uh, the bus drivers are really bad. It's weird. Like in the rest of the world, bus drivers are the the safe drivers. They're normally very slow here for whatever reason. They, it's just like a permanent, you know, size measuring contest where the bigger your, your vehicle, the more insane and faster you drive. That's crazy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, bus drivers here are the ones you want to get around because they're going so slow. Yeah. These are the ones that'll go around you. Like I'm, I'm like flooring it. I'm, I'm, I'm like going max speed, and I all out of nowhere, there's a giant bus driving on the wrong side of the road trying to overtake me and just honking its air horn, flashing its high beams, blinding me. It's like, what is going on? Well, I think it's a sign that you ended up at a fruit stand because we're talking about farming on this episode. And did you ever think to invest in where all that fruit comes from? You know what? Yes, actually. So we did a very similar episode in 162 a while back. This one is going to be exciting because this one is actually open to non-Americans as well. And this one has a host of different you know, uh, options. Uh, Farm Together is a sponsor of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. So thank you guys so much for coming on this uh, episode and sponsoring this episode. I'm excited to kind of catch up and, and figure out is this something that uh, can be part of our allocation, allocations or not? Yeah, they reached out. Uh, they wanted to, they wanted us to talk to CEO Artem Milinchuk. He's a really cool guy. I think it's a really good fit with our audience because he's just putting the word out there about investing in farmland. It's 
the oldest asset class, you know, owning land or owning gold are two of the biggest asset, two of the, two of the oldest assets, I should say, available. But we don't even think about them when we're thinking about modern investing and technology-wise, where fintech is just jumping into agriculture now, and they're doing a lot of cool stuff. It's a lot more than just you know, old guy on the tractor plowing the land. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that old guy on the tractor plowing the land no longer exists. And I was afraid that in the next generation, there would be actually less and less, you know, agriculture in the U.S. Uh, because nobody wants to inherit, you know, farmland anymore. No one wants to work that hard uh, with immigration laws making it harder for, you know, foreign labor. You know, there's less people willing to do that hard backbreaking work. You know, it's not like Australia where you can get paid $20 an hour for, you know, working on a farm in the U.S., you know, with having, you know, like literally it was just immigrants who are willing to, to, to break their backs for, you know, five bucks an hour or four bucks an hour. And that's gone now too. So I think with technology and also with, you know, new ways to fund these farms, this can hopefully kind of save our, our future of food in the U.S. Yeah, I really think technology is going to push us through the next uh, great advantage here. We're going to have, they're having higher yields on the land, but there's also less land available. Every day we're losing farmland, but every day the population is growing. So to me, this just sounds like a great situation for someone to jump in and really revolutionize the whole industry. Yeah, definitely. And what I do like about it is, I mean, there's a few things, right? One is it's not correlated to the stock market or to real estate kind of in general, yet you do have the appreciation of real estate because it is land and they can develop the land so they can literally plant trees. You know, they can plant apple trees, for example, and you know, you know, the first four years, you won't have any yield. But after that, as long as you're having a consistent yield, you've improved that land. So it's kind of like improving an apartment building or improving a, um, you know, a piece of commercial real estate, but it cash flows as well. So I, I do like that it has the, the cash flow aspect as well as, you know, the appreciation when we sell it in, you know, 10 years or how long, however long you hold it for. I totally agree. I think there's a lot of attractive factors in this. So let's talk to Artem. He's the CEO of Farm Together. All right, here we go. Here's Artem. It's been a category that a lot of our listeners have asked about, but up until recently, I don't really think it was very possible to invest in it. We're talking about farmland investing. There's some new fintech out there. Uh, one of the companies that stood out is a company called Farm Together, and we're talking to their CEO right now. It's Artem Milinchuk. Welcome to Invest Like a Boss, Artem. How's it going? Thank you for having me, Derek. Good to be here. So uh, why don't we just start off by uh, you telling us about yourself a little bit and what brought you to farmland investing? I know it might not be the sexiest thing to invest in, but it looks like you guys have a lot of great prospects going. And this is a new segment. Well, not necessarily a new segment, but a segment that I think a lot of the casual investors, at least, haven't even thought about. So tell us about yourself, how you got in involved in this, and what gets you excited about farmland? Yeah, you know, Derek, it is, it is very new and very exotic for a lot of people, but at the same time, it's the oldest asset class in the world. So I always find that dichotomy very ironic. Right. Uh, you know, for the longest time, you would measure your wealth by amount of land you have and gold, of course. So, and we sometimes call uh, farmland gold with a coupon. But, you know, my, my story is um, uh, most of my professional career has been in finance and in investing. And a lot of that sector focus was around food, agriculture and farmland. And personally, you know, my story is I 
was born in Soviet Union, raised in Russia and moved to Canada in 2007 before moving to United States in 2016. And uh, for people who kind of remember the 80s, 90s history um, and sort of what it was like if they have some insight into living in, in Russia at the time, food was very scarce, like literally there was nothing on the shelves. And so people were giving the still plots of land to do essentially subsistence farming, whether you were, you know, a factory worker or PhD, you would still go uh, during the summers, what we call, you know, potatoes and plant sure. your potatoes. Uh, and so it just gave me, I think, this very, very healthy um, um, kind of love and comfort around owning land and, and food where no matter what happens, you still have that uh, core ingredient of our very existence, right? Food and, food and water. And, and so to me, uh, you know, Farm Together and Farmland um, is just a way to open up this asset class to everyone, to make it available to everyone's portfolios, and then also to bring capital to farmers and landowners um, and creative capital, especially. It's a very underserved field right now by both fintech, finance, and tech. Um, and so we're excited to work in such a large market that still feels very virgin in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is really strange that it's it's one of our oldest forms of uh, wealth and land ownership, but it's largely been overlooked. So what can you tell us sets farmland investing apart from, you know, your standard commercial or residential real estate? How does it differ? Um, is it is it correlated to a residential or commercial real estate? Or what can you tell us that sets farmland apart? So I like that you mentioned real estate. I think definitely farmland broadly should fall under the real estate category. And the reason for that is that um, real estate broadly is a rental product. You buy a building and it appreciates in value, hopefully, plus you collect rental income. And there also might be some improvements as well you can make to improve the, uh, the value of the building. And so farmland in a lot of ways is like that. You also buy it for that uh, rental income, you buy it for price appreciation, you can make improvements there. Um, but uh, in a lot of ways, farmland is also uh, like timberland to some extent. Um, there is sort of this natural progression to the value of the land and uh, uh, in case of permanent crops that we'll get to in a second of the trees just growing naturally by themselves. So you get that kind of nature-driven price appreciation. It's also a little bit like infrastructure uh, where it's such a vital part of uh, a country's life that some people consider it you know, social infrastructure just as you would like schools and hospitals and roads and bridges. So it's it's very, uh, very interesting uh, asset class, but I would definitely put it in real estate. And then uh, there, to answer your question about correlation, um, farmland is uh, more than correlated with almost any other asset class. It is indeed the most correlated to real estate. Uh, historically, it's been around 0.4, which is still not that high. In 2020, uh, what we're seeing is that uh, land has decoupled from parts of the real estate market as well. As you can imagine, places like um, apartments in San Francisco and New York right now have I'm not doing that well, whereas farmland has been steady as she goes for the last four quarters. Um, and so we see that, you know, completely decoupling from some parts of the real estate market as well. Totally makes sense. I mean, uh, pandemic or not, people still got to eat for sure. So uh, as far as uh, it being uh, correlated to, to a real estate or anything, um, how does farmland compared to more traditional investing, you know, stocks, bonds, um, other asset classes. I know your, your site farmtogether.com has a lot of great resources on this. Um, how would you say farmland compares to something more traditional? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Let me yeah, run you and your audience quickly through the history of farmland and then what we think it will do going forward. Sure. Um, so 
broadly farmland as an index uh, where it was actually you know, an independently verified institutional index came about in the early 90s and it's called the ENCRI farmland index. So a lot of the data I'll quote will be from that index and it's getting bigger and bigger. Um, and we uh, are becoming members of that index as well. So the ENCRI farmland index from 91 to 2019 has delivered a 10% plus return in total returns. So rent plus income. That's actually uh, higher than almost any asset class, stocks, bonds, gold, commodities, infrastructure, timber. What's also really exciting is that when you look at the other side of the investing equation, risk, um, and if you use volatility as one of those proxies for risk, uh, farmland uh, volatility has only been about 6.97%, which is slightly higher than bonds, much lower than stocks, and then public and private real estate. So very low volatility as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit as well. So it looks very strong historically. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that since that, I believe that 1991 was the first year that data is available. There hasn't been a down year since then as well, correct? That's correct. And there's only been, I think, two, three down quarters. But by down, we mean like minus 0.1%, which was, for example, the case in, in Q1 of 2020. Which is amazing because I know if we use, let's say the S&P 500, it's had good years. It's had, you know, years under 10%, but there's, there's been some down years too, but that's amazing that, you know, we're 30 years into this, this index and there hasn't been one down year. So definitely speaks volumes about farmland. Yeah, I think, uh, and look, part of it is um, the function of farmland not yet being open to sufficient amount of capital. So you don't have those boom and bust cycles. And I think as farmland becomes mainstream, we might see kind of those cycles going up and down, but we're still far from that. And then secondly, when you think about sort of farmland overall, um, it has that very strong tailwinds, which is uh, growing population, improving diets and decreasing supply of farmland. So, so you have something that is just a, a almost, you know, in, intractable force that keeps pushing farmland up because you know they don't make it anymore. Whereas people, population keeps growing, people want to eat better and better, uh, and the urbanization, climate change, and other factors decrease that, supply. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. You know, farmlands. Uh, we're getting less and less. You know, we're building houses. You know, uh, subdivisions, whatever it may be. All that farmland is getting sucked up and used for other purposes. So, how are we able to make? more food with less land is, is is there a role that tech plays in that obviously we now have fintech jumping in to this farmland investing but how does actual tech play in the role of an everyday farmer so tech is is a big part of why farmland prices have actually increased in the last 50 years so if you look at the 50 year uh, time horizon, uh, farmland prices have increased on average by 5.9%, which is just incredible. Now, part of that is inflation. Part of that is that supply demand dynamic. But there's a big component in there, which is uh, a little bit like Moore's law. Um, farmland productivity grows by an average of 3.2% every year since we've been measuring since 1947. And that is uh, whether it's green revolution, whether it's better genetics, whether it's uh, variable rate application, which is kind of better application of fertilizer, whether it's better, you know, act tech today. Uh, we find ways to uh, kind of produce more and more on the land without compromising quality and without needing more land. So that's a big part of it. And um, I think what we're excited about in the next 5, 10, 15 years is, of course, better genetics, better use of water, fertilizer, something we call regenerative as well, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, and that autonomous uh, farming equipment, whether it's the drones, whether it's the driving. Um, you know, an example I always like to use this right now, if I want to irrigate my farm, 
there's a foreman that needs to drive there, switch on the tab, be there for eight hours, switch it off, drive back. Uh, there is a solar plant right across the farm. There's amazing connectivity. Now with Starlink, we're getting more and more of that completely independent of the, you know, the landline connectivity. Uh, I can probably do that remotely. Like I don't need necessarily someone to drive there and do it. So there's also not just um, the sort of sheer yield productivity of the soil. There's also the decreasing cost of farming that I think can lend to you know better prices for the consumer, but also better returns for the farmer owners and the farmers. So it's a win-win-win across the board. Totally makes sense. I think a lot of people are still stuck in the idea that, you know, there's the one farmer on a tractor, but that is getting less and less. And I, I feel like a lot of farmers spend more time at a desk now than maybe even out in the field. That's so very true. Very lots true. of cool stuff happening. I want to touch back on something you mentioned as well earlier um, that a lot of the market, uh, a lot of the investors are not in this asset. So uh, like I said, on your site, there's a lot of good resources. Um, you claim that uh, farmland is a $10 trillion global asset yet only 2% of investors actually have part of their portfolios in farmland. Uh, why is this? Is, is it just pure access to be able to invest or are there any other reasons why such a small amount of the population is invested in farmland? Yeah, and there, it's actually, um, it's even less than that. So the, two, so the total market is indeed 10 trillion, but it's 2% of the US market that is owned gotcha. by investors, which is two and a half trillion, which is still the largest farmland market in the world. Um, and that could be broadly true for the global market, just we don't have as good data on the global market as we do on the U.S. market. Sure. Thanks um, for clarifying that. And, and the reason for that is really, um, if, you know, if, if I can start sort of broadly, uh, part of the story is alternatives as an asset class are just now opening up. If we look at 2008, $3 trillion was invested into alternatives, meaning, you know, anything beyond bonds and stocks. Gold, crypto, real estate, hedge funds, infrastructure, timber, all those kind of new asset classes. Uh, that number stands at 10 trillion today, roughly, uh, but it's still a drop in the bucket given the global, I don't even know how many trillion dollars market in, in the world. So part of farmland opening up is that it's just following in the broader trend of all the other alternatives opening up. And alternatives are forecasted to reach 14 trillion by 2023, 2024. But part of it is uh, the function of the supply side of farmland. It's a very opaque, fragmented market. And historically, farmland would get passed on from parents to children. But what's happening now is two things. One, kids don't want to be farmers anymore, although I think it's actually a really great profession and people should go into farming. It's the stuff that's not popular that brings you money. Um, and then <laughs> yeah. B, the average age of farmers approaching 60. So you have farmers now retiring en masse. And what it means is that USDA ex expects now that, and this is a crazy number, 70% uh, of the market of farmland will change hands in the next 20 years, counting from 2015. Think about it, more than half of all farmland in the United States, we're talking millions and hundreds of millions of acres, will become available. A lot of that you know, will still go to the kids, but a lot of it on the open market. So it's also a function of availability where until the last five years, um, there just wasn't enough you know, supply as well. And then you know, there's a lot of other factors that are kind of smaller, but in terms of the big driving factors, those are, I would say, the most important. Sure. So I think ironically, it's not that millennial, what is that millennials don't want to be farmers, but they want to be in the farmland space. You know, a lot of our audience is millennials and they've specifically requested, they want to talk about agriculture. So I think more owning it as a digital asset, they don't necessarily want to get their hands dirty in, in the dirt and, and plant the crops, but there's definitely interest out there for farming. So I think the future looks good and it seems like a really great time to be involved. Absolutely. So I want to touch on, as 
at the time of this recording, we are about to uh, pass our third stimulus package in the U.S. economy uh, under President Biden. And that's going to be potentially $1.9 trillion. And with all this money being flooded in the economy, I think inflation is definitely on a lot of people's minds. How can farmland help you hedge against inflation? Yeah, thank you for you know bringing this up. It's actually another important factor that I think is driving interest in farmland. When we look historically, farmland has been a better hedge against inflation than even gold. And the reason for that is very simple. It's first principles thinking. Thousands of farmland products actually compose the CPI, the inflation index. Uh, when we think about farms, we think, you know, cornflakes maybe, right, or almonds. But it's really what we call food fiber fuel feed. So it goes into so many other applications. Uh, penicillin is made using products of uh, farms. So um, uh, because of that, kind of the inflation is almost a component of the farmland return. So you, you have almost this mechanical relationship with inflation. And indeed, a lot of our investors on the platform, especially when investing in row crop farms, corn, soybean, that tend to be kind of low risk, low return type products, uh, they call them bond with a better coupon that is inflation protected. So um, with farmland, you get very stable cash flows, you get that price appreciation and you get inflation protection. Um, so definitely, I would say that I, I, I don't know what percentage, but it's high. A lot of our investors uh, are in farmland because of inflation and the, the scare exactly that you described that all this money printing, what does it mean for inflation in the medium term? Great. Just one more question on the actual business of farmland investing, and then we'll, we'll get into more specifics on farm together. Um, obviously, these stimuluses are being passed because COVID-19 going on. So with COVID-19, I know here, I live in Los Angeles myself. Um, you had said you were in San Francisco, but you're actually in Portland right now. So everybody's moving around. They're moving out of the city. Um, LA is a ghost town right now. I love the traffic but it's just, it's not the same. Um, everybody's moving out. They want some land for themselves. So is this affecting availability of farmland? Is, is, is this mass exodus? Is this people going out and absorbing farmland? So there's even less available is it, and, and in turn, is that driving up the price of farmland or what are you seeing with this trend of the mass exodus out of the city? No, I think we've seen more people moving to smaller cities. Uh, definitely heard some people kind of moving back to small towns and uh, kind of coming back to the, you know, the parents farm a little bit. So I, I hope that will introduce more interest in the younger generation to kind of take on the family business. Uh, but broadly, we have not seen, um, well, one, any weakness in farmland prices uh, because of COVID or any sort of perceived, you know, financial stress that farmers may have. We have not seen, um, well, we have seen short-term hits to certain products like almonds in Q1, Q2. That, um, but this was mostly related to uh, things like uh, logistic difficulties. And also almonds are a very snacky product, which is you know, bars and travel, which is not happening right now. So they've sure. been uh, suffering a little bit. But broadly, no, we haven't seen any downside. In terms of upside, though, we also have not seen that specific factor influencing the farming prices. There's other factors at play. But in terms of kind of people leaving the cities, I think it's more, I think, helping second, third tier cities. Um, right now, you know, I'm technically actually in Vancouver, Washington, part of the Portland area. And uh, Washington doesn't have income taxes. So right now I'm hearing a lot of companies like HP moving part of the workforce there right now. So I think those states and cities will see an influx. And indeed, look, personally, I have to say, moving from San Francisco, 
uh, being able to enjoy a little bit more space, a little bit user-friendly, consumer-friendly prices has been definitely very nice. <laughs> that makes sense. I saw, uh, especially the, the tax factor, I saw an article recently, U-Haul publishes their annual report of where people have left and gone to. Uh, no, number one and number two were Texas and Tennessee to move into. And the, the last city on, or the last state on the list, number 50 was California. So it's, it's wild how many people are leaving. It is wild. Um, anyways, let's talk about farm together uh, itself. That's why we're here. So let's just start it off right off the bat. Uh, who qualifies to invest in farm together? Uh, do you need to be accredited? Do you have to be a U.S. citizen? Uh, go over uh, who, who your investors uh, have, what they have to do to qualify for farm together. Yeah, so you actually don't have to be a U.S. citizen, which is sometimes a surprise to a lot of people. There are certain states that prohibit foreign ownership, like Oregon, so you cannot invest in that if you're a foreign citizen. Uh, but most countries that fall under the FATF framework, which is the anti-money laundering, anti-terrorist financing framework, uh, uh, can easily invest. Um, the minimum right now is about 15,000. Sometimes we have a promotion where it can be 10,000. Uh, if you are in the United States, though, you do need to be an accredited investor, which typically means income of two to 300,000, depending if you file single or jointly, or uh, your net worth needs to be above a million, excluding primary residence. Uh, having said that, so go ahead, Derek. Yeah. Sorry, uh, it's this question that comes up a lot on the podcast with our listeners. So I just want to make sure we get it right. If you're, if you're not a U.S. citizen, do you also have to be accredited? If you're not a U.S. citizen, citizen, there's a different flow for you. There's still certain requirements um, that uh, are kind of very specific and a little bit country by country. So we, you can check it out on the website, but I don't think I'll be able to fully <laughs> get yeah. into that on this call. Sounds good. And is there any plans uh, in the future for a non-accredited fund maybe, or some other way to let uh, non-accredited investors get in on the action? Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely plans to let in non-accredited investors. There was actually a new regulation that was passed by the previous administration to simplify some of those non-accredited uh, rules, but that's right now been paused. So we don't know what's going to happen with it. It's a little bit in a limbo. Uh, but with accredited investors, you do have now new rules that already are in place that for certain professional licenses like Series 7, the broker licenses, and we expect more and more, you do qualify now. Um, I do believe also that if you work with an RIA, then we, uh, we can work with you uh, to, uh, for you to invest into some financial products that we have. Uh, so there's more and more of that happening. So either way, register, stay tuned. And we definitely, as soon as it's, uh, we, we have the time and as a team, we can in, accept non-accredited investors. We will, because, you know, we want uh, kind of everyone in America own a piece of America, <laughs> as we say. So We're all about that too. We, we want yeah. as many investment opportunities as possible. I know it gets frustrating for some of our listeners at times when they I go, know. I yeah. love this, but I can't do it. So I, I think you can still sign up for an account at Farm Together, correct? Even if you're not accredited. So, and I would assume the second you have something in place, they're going to get a Yeah, yeah. Please, please sign up. Look, I, I feel the frustration. Uh, you know, technically, even I, if I wasn't a sort of the, you know, the CEO of the company, I wouldn't be able to invest in these deals. It's really frustrating. So, and we, you know, we pay ourselves startup salaries, so I'm not making like, crazy bucks here. Um, we really hope that you know this new administration as well will look into the regulations and definitely the crowdfunding industry overall is working hard to um, sort of explain the risks because look I, I hear you know the SEC as well 
um, you don't want people investing to like crazy stuff that's not vetted. I would argue that farmland, by the nature of its sort of inherent intrinsic value, how much it is in the land, um, it's hard to lose all your money. Um, you really need to, uh, I don't know what needs to happen to farmland that suddenly you know, it doesn't have value. Um, yeah, it, it really like, makes you think how they can justify that investing something like farmland is more risky than opening a Robinhood account and going and, millions and, of dollars and buying, on options. buying crazy, yeah, <laughs> one week out of the money options. That's a very good point, Derek. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we're I think we're on the right track to getting things turned around. You know, with anything related to the government, it's going to take time. So you can preview some of the listings on Farm Together. I checked them out. Why don't you just go over how your listings work? What is someone actually buying when they invest in into a Farm Together deal? Uh, you said the average minimum is usually around fifteen thousand. Uh, what would they expect to find on the listings, and what kind of data do you provide that's available before you invest? Yeah, absolutely. Let me run you through the mechanics of the deal, then the uh, target return profile of the deal, and then sort of reporting and documents you get. Um, so first, you know, we, we want to give people as much of a direct ownership of farmland as possible, you know, especially with the events with the aforementioned Robin Hood, where suddenly certain stocks were restricted for trading. Uh, we heard some people actually had their stocks being forcefully sold. Um, we want to give people as much of that direct ownership as possible. So every farm is put into its own Delaware LLC, separate entity. That LLC is administered by a third party. So that's, uh, you know, we are on a very good financial footing right now. We don't expect to go anywhere, but um, there's that additional kind of bankruptcy remote structure that helps you get more comfort around the ownership of land. Um, the, the land itself is typically operated by set contract with a established farming group or farming family that are well known, typically have decades of experience. So that is taken care of by that farmers. And you as an investor buy units or percentage in that Delaware LLC. And then so you own and the LLC owns that title to the land. It's always 100% of the land that is bought, at least today. So uh, you have that direct ownership of the land. Um, and so that's really important for us. The um, the tax documents you receive are K-1. It's a pass-through entity. And so, by the way, what it means is that if land of the deal is a development opportunity, because of the attractive depreciation uh, tax treatment, that gets passed through. So if, let's say, you put in you know, a few million dollars initially to develop the land, that gets passed through to you, and then you can offset it against your income. So high earners especially, they love that because it gets, you know, they can deduct that from their income. Um, and then in terms of the target returns, so we target net returns, total returns between seven and 12%. Sometimes it gets a little higher, but this isn't your crypto. This isn't your, you know, Amazon or startup. This, sure. is the, this is the boring, stable, steady part of your portfolio. The cash we flows there. We love boring at Invest Like a Boss. Yeah. We, we talk about the fun stuff, but we really love the boring stuff too. <laughs> so why don't you tell me how are those returns generated? You know, you said seven to 12%. Is that strictly off uh, income from renting the land or leasing the land to these farmers? Is it just the uh, appreciation of the land? Is it crop yields? Can you, are, is the investor involved in crop yields, uh, in profit sharing? Can you go over some, where some of this income is generated? Yeah, Derek, so it's, it's all of the above. Um, breaking it down, first price appreciation of the land. We see historically that, um, you know, we talked about the historic land appreciation. We see that going forward. Um, there's also development component when you're planting trees, you're making improvements that flows to the value of the land and then eventually gets realized at sale. And typically our deals are eight to 12 year hold period. 
Um, and then you, uh, and there's no say of any investor or even us when the land gets sold. It's typically you know, a 10-year hold with two one-year extensions, and then the land gets sold. There's also exactly that cash yield component, which is the yield of the land. It's either a rental model where you collect rental um, payments from the farmer and get passed on to the investor, or it's a profit share or a, uh, a profit allocation, where sometimes it, the land is fully direct operated by a farmer by a contract where they get a fixed fee for operating the land and it's a separate type of uh, arrangement. And you as a farm, so you as an investor, we manage this for you, have the full exposure to the, to the revenue and to the expenses of the farm. And those are typically the highest return and highest risk types of opportunities. But if you know what you're doing, then you can mitigate a lot of the risk. So it's, it's exactly as you said, it's all of the above. Sounds good. And I've looked into the subject a little bit. Can you tell us, is it more profitable to jump into a row crop, which I believe is, re is replaced every year, whether it's corn, soybeans, whatever it may be, or a permanent crop, you know, the aforementioned almonds or uh, pistachios or orange trees or whatever it may be. Is there an advantage to owning one over the other? Yeah, typically permanent crops historically have generated uh, higher returns. Um, it's in the double digits. Um, and that's because of the more specialty nature of the crops. Uh, and because when you know what you're doing in terms of farming, then you have substantial advantage over just renting. So a lot of permanent crops also a direct operated model, which means high volatility, but higher return. Raw crops um, are your, you know, and just to sort of take a step back, the reason it's called permanent crops, because it's something that you plant and stays on the farm for years and years, like almond sure. trees. In row crops, it's your corn and soybean that you plant every year and you plant it in rows, although you know, permanent crops you also plant in rows. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, that gets sort of replanted every year. Um, and so because of that, as you can imagine in row crops, it's just really hard to screw up the land. Like I don't know what you need to do. I mean, dump nuclear waste on it to really decrease its in intrinsic value, its productive capacity. In permanent crops, you know, of course the trees can uh, have kind of more exposure. Someone can come and cut them down with the chainsaw. Uh, sure. You need to take more care of them. So you can't really rent them out as easily because you want someone like a long-term tenant. Uh, so because of all of that, it's just more complexity associated with permanent crops, which means more returns. In row crops, you expect 7 to 8% uh, uh, target net return, sometimes as low as 6%. But uh, row crops actually have had historic volatility of 3%. And like it's, it's, it's better than <laughs> bonds in some regard. Sounds and, and so good. We, yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely no expert in commodities, but I've noticed some of these, I believe almonds, even like we were talking about, mm -hmm. can have wild prices in, in the market. So are there some that's more stable or does this get factored in that, you know, almonds could be worth, I, I don't know the prices here, I'm just throwing it out. It's, you know, $3 a pound one year and then six months later it's nine dollars a pound or something wild like that I, I if correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like i've seen a lot of wild swings in some of these commodities. you definitely have yeah and three pounds is is on the money nine pounds is very high i mean i hope so <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um so you're right and that's that's where the high return comes from um uh, the permanent crops because you know when you have high volatility it also uh, the market typically requires higher returns um but overall uh, as in any commodity, the cycles kind of smooth themselves out over time. That's why we um, are very firm on our hold periods where it's typically, you know, eight to 10 years. We don't think you can invest in farming for like a two, three year term. 
Uh, and over that longer period, you see that prices kind of smoothing out and long-term trends for island prices are very positive. And so when we underwrite the deals, we will kind of assume that average price. It's a little bit like investing in oil and gas mining. And then, you know, you'll have your volatility. But uh, the prices for the land of almonds, uh, the almond, almond farms, are actually way less volatile. And that's because the buyers and the sellers, when they look at it, they again look at that long-term pricing uh, of the land. And that's why you see almond prices can go from three bucks to $1.50, but the farms will not suddenly decrease in price by 50%. Uh, so there's Makes a lot sense. of resilience that downside protection comes from the value of the land itself. Yeah. Great. Thanks for answering that. And speaking of hold times, uh, they, you should expect a 10-year investment term, but we know things come up and let's say someone needs to get out of the deal. Is it possible? Are you able to, to transfer it to someone else? Is there some kind of fee you take to do that? Mm-hmm. Or are you? is it just 10 years or until the land sells? Definitely encourage 10-year hold, but we are working on a secondary market. Uh, it's not fully up and running yet, okay. so, um, but it's very doable. There's nothing preventing it legally, technically, financially, or otherwise. And so we do hope that one day we'll have a secondary market. But right now, we, um, we encourage people to not take that into account in the investing, just because, you know, until we have it, we legally cannot promise that. But we can say that we're working on it. Okay, makes sense. And we got to talk about it. So how does Farm Together get paid? Uh, what kind of fees do you take out of these deals? We, we try to keep it very simple. Um, so there's a, um, a one-time fee at closing that is kind of an administrative expense reimbursement fee that just goes into all the work we put into putting the deal together. And then there's an annual management fee, which is a percentage of fair appraised asset value every year, typically. Yeah. So that aligns us with you. The, the, you know, the better the fund performs, the better we do. Uh, and those fees are typically one to 2%. Um, and uh, there's no really other fees, although we're exploring some other fees to further align us with investors, maybe capital gain fee at exit or performance fees. We try to keep it very simple. Great. And speaking of capital gains, maybe a way to avoid some of those taxes. I noticed you also have an option for sole proprietorship. Um, you know, the average deal you'd send before is 15,000 on a crowdfunded deal. But what about for our major bosses out there that just want their own deal? How does that yeah, work? The major bosses out there, we have a bespoke account. So if you have 3 million or more to invest into a farm, we can find a custom farm for you based on your criteria and put the deal together, still source and manage it as we would a crowdfunded farm, but there'll be more uh, control and flexibility for you. So the people especially like it for uh, taxes or to support a particular region. They might be you know, from a particular area, they want to farm there. Um, so that's a very popular product with the major bosses, as you said, because it, it gives you a lot of uh, customization and flexibility. And how cool is it to say you own your own farm and you don't even have Pretty to get cool. hands dirty? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would be remiss to bring it up. Um, Johnny, who's one of our co-hosts on here, had this really cool, I thought it was a cool idea, but it's kind of cheesy. He thought, you know, if you invest in one of these deals and let's say it's avocado trees, his idea was, you know, once a year, you should send me a box of avocados. Do you have any kind of, any kind of special bonus for your investors that they received as, yeah. as part of the land? Yeah, funny you mentioned avocados because I was just reading that Oprah, uh, I think, bought an avocado farm a couple of years ago. Oh, she nice. was dissatisfied with the quality of shelf avocados. <laughs> I would love to have an avocado tree. Yeah, that's a very Oprah thing to do as well. I love it. <laughs> um, so we do have this right now for our first deal that we did. 
We don't have it for the deals because the logistics around that are insane. However, yeah. I would love to have that. So one thing that we do as a team to also further align ourselves with, with our investors, we personally invest in every deal. Now, you know, as I mentioned, we earn startup salaries, so it's not millions, but it's something that's meaningful to us. And I would love to receive, you know, the citruses, the almonds, the walnuts every year. Right. Uh, as soon as we can figure out the logistics, I think that would be a great perk. I mean, I think that just would be, uh, you know, having like little almonds together or walnuts together yeah. package to come to you. Uh, it'd be, it'd but, be really cool, you know, knowing, you know, I had a hand in helping growing these. So it's kind of a cool little perk uh, Johnny had brought up and I'm sure if he- I, I would love that. As, as soon as we can, <laughs> as soon as we can figure it out logistically, uh, everyone can expect that. That would be fantastic. Awesome. It's been really great talking to you. Let's talk a couple more things before we get out of here. Uh, what are some good resources or books where people can learn more about agricultural and farmland investing? Because like we mentioned before, this is something that is right in front of our faces, but it's just not talked about. Yeah, it, it really is not. And honestly, like this podcast has been great. Uh, I would say we've put a lot of work into educational materials and a learning center on our website. So farmtogether.com, you can download white papers, you can read very easy to understand one-on-ones and farmland, how it performs. You can also listen in, even if you're not accredited at the time to our deals. Uh, we do webinars on every deal, so you can ask questions and you can see uh, kind of what are the specifics of underwriting a deal. And it, it sometimes, you know, initially can seem very daunting, like, oh, there's so many things I don't know. But then when we break it down, you know, there's really a finite number of risks and factors to consider, like weather, soil, water, farmer, what's the end product for the uh, produce that the farm produces. Um, and so I think you'll suddenly learn quite a bit and then, you know, you'll be an expert in no time. So there's very robust materials that we put together. Um, honestly, I would say that we have probably one of the best uh, resources on the web right now for farmland investing and, and agriculture. A lot of materials on the blogs as well. Uh, we put out like a few articles a week. So there's definitely a ton. You could spend the weekend going through it and get really smart on it very quickly. That's so great. So check out farmtogether.com. Lots of great assets to learn more about agricultural investing. There's, you can also go directly to the listings and learn more about these individual farms. You know, uh, whether you invest or not, like you said, create a login. You'll get all the information right there. Farmtogether.com. Artem Milinchuk is his name. He's the CEO. Really appreciate your time learning more about this asset class. Uh, it's something we're very interested here in Invest Like a Boss. And I think our listeners will be as well. Thanks for your time, Artem. Thank you so much, Derek. This was really cool to do. All right, Derek, pistachios or apples? What would you rather invest in? You know what? I'm actually looking at an apple offering on Farm Together's site right now. They're projecting a 15% return. Guess how much the pistachios are projected to get? Uh, I would imagine less. A little bit less, 10.2%. So I'm going to have to go with apples. Mm, mm. I, you know what? Maybe the reason why they're projecting such a high number is there's now something called branded apples. Uh, I, there was a, a whole like Freakonomics episode or something about it, Planet Money maybe. And they're talking about how, you know, apples used to just be, you know, red delicious and the whatever green one was. Granny Smith. And it's be Granny Smith. It's, it, and they're both terrible. <laughs> I remember like no one ever liked apples. So many apples now. I'm out in the stores every day shopping for people. It's one of my side hustles. You got Envy apples. You got like Brayburns. You got Honeycrisp. You got Crips Pink Lady. 
you got Gala, you got Fuji. There's endless possibilities to apples. Yeah. And the new one, and actually it is a one of the investments on Farm Together is Cosmic Crisp. Have you had that? Yeah, I think that's part honey crisp and part something else. They're making all these wild hybrid apples. Yeah, you know, it's smart. I mean, it's first off, it's smart, you know, uh, making something more delicious or longer shelf life. I, I know that they've been experimenting with bananas as well, where I haven't seen it you know, uh, actually in market yet, but I, I remember taking a survey in one of these um, focus groups where they asked uh, how orange can a banana be for you to still want to buy it? And I was like, what, <laughs> what do you, crazy. what do you mean? I just looked it up. Uh, Cosmic crisp is a half enterprise apple and half honey crisp apple. There you go. Hun- honey crisp is delicious. So I love it. So with the orange bananas, it turns out they figured out a way where the banana can have a much longer shelf life, which is, is better for shipping and storage. So instead of it going brown in you know five days, it can stay for you know three weeks or a month. Uh, it's sweeter and it has a way more vitamins like beta carotene, which makes it more orange. And the only downside is it turns orange. So let me ask you, Derek, would you eat an orange banana if it was just better in every other way? First off, I'm a weirdo. I'm one of the few people on this planet that does not like bananas. <laughs> and um, secondly, I could see that being a hit because one thing I saw in the store the other day is a pink pineapple. And you know what? Mm. Those are blowing up on Instagram. So if you bring an orange banana, I think it would be popular with the Instagram crowd. And they're also getting premiums. Guess how much at the uh, local Gelson's here in Los Angeles? Oh God! That a pink pineapple goes for per pound. How much do you think one pound of oh, a pink my pineapple God. would go for? So the prices per pound for pineapples here in Sri Lanka, or it's I think a 180 rupees, which is 90 cents per kilo, which means per pound it'd be like 45 cents. Okay. Gelson's is. Is a very expensive supermarket. It's almost like it's basically Whole Foods. And you gotta you gotta add the Instagram branding to it because it looks cool. Yeah, there's another premium. I can imagine people paying five dollars a pound for that. Keep going, Johnny. Is it ten? Is it or less than ten? Uh, ten times two. Twenty dollars a pound. <laughs> Nin- Are you insane? Nineteen ninety nine a pound for a pink pineapple. Oh my gosh. And you know what? That people were buying them. I'm sure they will. I, I'm absolutely sure they would. And, and these people are stupid and they have nothing better to do with their money. <laughs> they should be investing in pretty much anything instead of investing in a pink pineapple. Exactly. Buy a yellow pineapple, take the difference, put it in an index fund. <laughs> or into a you know acre of land or exactly. you know, into a farm deal. I agree. I'm really, I think this is cool to do this. Unfortunately, not yet, at least. I'm not an accredited investor. Hopefully soon. Uh, if this was available for me, I think I'd really be interested in this. What do you think about the 10-year hold time? I mean, I in general, I don't like long hold times, but I actually think they're they're good when you get locked in. Uh, I wouldn't put you know uh, I wouldn't put a huge allocation into something with a 10-year hold. So definitely wouldn't be 100% of my portfolio or even 50% of my portfolio. But I do think that being forced into a 10-year hold for you know 20% or 25% of your portfolio is actually a good move where you're, you're forced not to sell stuff during ups and downs. And it's kind of a, a set it and forget it kind of investment. 
I agree too. I don't like the long hold times as well, but this is something that I just see winning out. I mean, all the factors are there. Supply and demand. There's more people on earth. We need more food. There's less land available. They got to figure out how to make higher yields on this land. Uh, Artemet even said, you know, the aging farmer, the average age is around like 60 or so. So more than half of America's farmland will be available and swap hands in the next 20 years. That's crazy. I mean, those are potentially huge numbers. And I really don't see much of a risk here for doing this, which another reason that it really bothers me about the, uh, the accredited investor thing, you know, as he mentioned, you know, I could go on Robinhood and make crazy stupid decisions, buying options and stocks that I should have no business buying, but yet I can't invest as something as simple as farmland. Yeah, it, it is really silly. I mean, farmland is way more safe and secure than, you know, cryptocurrencies or individual stocks. It's, uh, but it's one of those things where that's the current rule. Hopefully that'll change soon. I do understand though, that, you know, why the accreditation is in place. Um, but, it, yeah, it, it is a big deterrent. Um, but fortunately, I think for non-Americans, the process is actually a bit easier, or at least to start. Uh, you, you, for for Americans, if you click that you're not invested, you know you're not accredited, you can't even get to the next stage and to look at the deals. If you click you're not American, um, you can actually see the deals first. I don't know what it actually takes to. To invest, I don't know if you have to be accredited in your home country, uh, but that's something that, you know, it sounds like it, it's a case-to-case basis. So if you're interested, go through the process and see how far you can go. Yeah, and if you do have any more questions on that, you know, feel free to reach out to us too, and, and we'll uh, we'll get back to Farm Together. Their team's really cool. We'll figure it out as far as outside the U.S. But you know, if you are in the U.S., you do have to be accredited. But like you said, I talked to Artem and their marketing person. They are trying to work out some kind of fund, hopefully soon in the, in the near future, to let non-accredited investors invest in it. But it's just a fact of you know the system. And I know there's been talk about with the Biden administration of hopefully uh, flexing the rules a little bit on the accreditation, maybe pass some kind of test to prove that you, you are financially knowledgeable. But you know that's down the line, but we'll see. Um, right now, there are two current offerings. They have been selling out fast. Um, I spoke to Artem personally. He said, you know, they're working on more offerings, but they're still at the kind of the startup phase. So they're, you know, you know, smaller staff, but they'll be growing. But it looks like there's definitely interest in these deals. They're going pretty quick. You know what? Actually, when I when I looked, I couldn't even find any open deals. What are the two that are open right now? Uh, there's a Pistachio Farm in Tulare County, California. Okay. That is your one that yields. Uh, they're expecting 10.2%. And... Oh, I guess there's technically only one because the other choice is you get your own farm, which the investment starts at $1 million. So if we got some mega bosses out there, those are the ones that they'll, they'll, they give you a, uh, the tax, the 1031 exchange, where you can take other capital gains and push them into there to do some tax savings. There's definitely some benefits beyond the standard investment if you want to do that. But that's, you know, that's an exclusive crowd there. You've got to start yeah. at a minimum million dollar investment. But that's actually smart because if you have a house in California or New York that is now worth over a million dollars and you don't know where to put that money because real estate is basically overpriced everywhere in the U.S. because of super low uh, interest rates, why not 1031 exchange it into a deal like this? It's actually is a pretty smart move. Yeah, that really makes sense, especially if you don't have another uh, property to invest in. Might as well buy some farmland. Yeah. So- Marketing team at 
at uh, Farm Together, if you are listening to this, please get get it into the books of uh, the you know the crop the the, the crop you know uh, mailings every year because I really think that as silly as it sounds, that will get a ton of people to invest in these deals if they know they're going to get a, a you know big bag of uh, of the 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 pistachios that they grew or they helped grow at the end of the year because it, it, and it's great marketing. Can you like, can you imagine that if you get like a huge box of like four pounds of pistachios, that's, you know, uh, that's labeled, you know, with a little letter saying like, Hey, you know, like you helped grow this, you know, here's your, here's your kind of, you know, yearly, you know, uh, yield. People are going to share that with their friends, their coworkers, their family members, and it's going to be great marketing for everyone. Totally. Just like the, the pink pineapple, I'm putting my box of pistachios that I helped grow all over my Instagram and everywhere else as well. I'm glad I got that in there for you, Johnny. He really liked that idea. So I think there's a possibility of that happening in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it could be fair just to have that be one of the expenses. I mean, it's just, you know, like it, it, it's weird. I don't know how they would actually uh, set it up because on one hand, you can almost make it like a Kickstarter type investment where, you know, if you invest $5,000, you get, you know, one pound of pistachios. If you, if you put 10,000 or more, you get four pounds or, you know, whatever it is, that could be a, one way to do it. But I actually think it would be just more, you know, easier and, and more fair if they just said, okay, whatever yields we have then the year, let's just ship it out to, to all investors kind of, you know, uh, depending on how much they've invested and they can just, add it to the business, you know, operating expense. Um, you know, I, I know logistically and shipping is going to be a pain in the butt for, for them, which is why it's been hard for them to do uh, thus far. But I really think that this will encourage people to invest. And as silly as it sounds, because we can just go and buy a bag of pistachios, you know, ourselves for 20 bucks. I, I think people would be happy to you know, invest 10 or 20 grand <laughs> into a deal just to, just to have that as a perk. Yeah, I think so. I mean, farm together, you could hire me. I could be your fulfillment person, but I also want to sample all the products. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Thanks again to farm together for coming on and sponsoring this episode. Uh, I learned a lot. I think it was a great follow-up to 162 and I'm glad this is open to non-American investors. If you have any questions, feel free to leave it uh, below or start a discussion in the boss lounge, which is our Facebook group for invest like a boss listeners if you want an invite, all you have to do is go to investlikeaboss.com and click on bonus or sign up for the email list. And you'll have a invite to our exclusive chat on Facebook for all the listeners. Yeah, just head over to farmtogether.com. You can set up an account. Uh, Johnny and I actually made one right before this episode too. It took all of five minutes and you can check out these offerings and even just learn more about farmland investing. It's pretty cool. It's something that we didn't know much about until a few months ago. So it's really interesting to learn about. I, I would have thought this was a super boring topic and I had no interest, but now I'm actually really interested in investing in something like this. And also we'll post up, I got a video interview too of Artem too. So if you want to see him in person, sometimes it's a little different experience. If you get to actually see the person, we're going to post that on our YouTube channel too. Just search invest like a boss. All right. And while you're searching, go on your podcast app and search for Invest Like a Boss. Subscribe and give us five stars if you can. It really helps us kind of go up in the rankings. So we get suggested as a podcast for other listeners. Uh, this week, I want to shout out CS Mostow, which at first I thought said Moscow. Said great podcast, five stars. 
Johnny and Sam are so down on earth and have a ton of knowledge and experience. I like that they are always looking for new investment opportunities and are willing to try them out themselves. I'm a small business owner looking to grow my business and I've already learned so much in just a few episodes. I trust them and I'm excited to be part of the Invest Like a Boss community. I feel like we're going to ride this to the top together. I think we're all going to the top. And shout out Erin Leinhauser. She left a really cool comment on Facebook the other day. She said, just stumbled upon your podcast. I like listening to the first few episodes, regardless how, how old they are. But I want to know if maybe they're outdated. Should I just skip ahead and uh, backtrack someday later on? I think you should start at the beginning and go up. I mean, all our, every episode we've ever made, I think even if there are some things that maybe don't apply anymore because the market's been changing, whatever it is, there's always some kind of little nugget that you can learn from everything. And you'll get to hear how, you know, Sam and Johnny evolve. And then, you know, I jump in about a year ago and how the three of us have gotten to where we're at today. So I think start at the beginning. And then when you get to this episode, 172, you'll get a cool shout out. Yeah, definitely. Because I really believe that you can learn so much from, you know, seeing how things went. I mean, the only things that are outdated are going to be the actual prices. So like, if we talk about, you know, uh, Vanguard VTI, the total stock market index, you know, being at $114 a share. And today it's at, you know, $200 a share. I mean, obviously that information is now changed, but the principle of how we invest in it, that always is the same. And you can see if we were right, we were wrong. Uh, if, you know, how things went up and down as well. So I, I think it's actually super valuable to listen to old episodes and start from the beginning to learn a lot of the uh, foundations uh, for investing and s just kind of grow along with us. Because when I started, I had, you know, I think maybe $200,000 uh, invested and every year it's grown. And luckily, and I, you know, I was smart enough not to make any big gambles or mistakes and lose it all, which a lot of people do. Yeah, definitely. So shout out to Aaron. Thank you for that comment. Anybody else? You know, we're on all social media platforms. We're trying to be active everywhere. You know, uh, Boss Islands and Patreon are kind of our favorites to post everything in. But also, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, it's all the same. It's at invest like a boss. All right. Great episode, Derek. Great catching up. And I'll see all you bosses next week. Thanks, Johnny. See you guys later. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment folios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.